We're back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. The seven Hawaii National Guard troops who tested positive for COVID-19 have recovered and were just released from quarantine this past weekend. We talked to Colonel Stanley Garcia about why the 200 troops had not been vaccinated prior to uh, being sent to Washington, D.C. for President Joe Biden's inauguration. So our troops were medically screened before they went up to D.C., but they weren't vaccinated. Uh, Actually, there was really no time to get them the two shots before they deployed because we deployed all 193 of them within two days. And you folks were in the process of vaccinating your troops, I think, on the neighbor islands. Talk about who got the vaccines. So right now, our joint task force who works directly with the counties, those are the individuals based on the Department of Defense schema are, are listed to be vaccinated. So those who are the soldiers, we, we were vaccinating at that time. Okay, so those were the essential personnel. Correct. The troops that went to D.C., I don't know, what, what was that experience like for them? They went up there and they were representing, of course, the White National Guard, and they were assigned to task force bridges at the very beginning. And so what they did was do a work with the law enforcement up there as far as the checkpoints in and out of the bridges going into D.C. proper. And then right towards the end of that mission, they were reassigned um, to mission of, of the Capitol to provide security for the Capitol. And so uh, they came back with a lot of positive information, and they all felt that they uh, really served our state and uh, country to the full extent. So they did a great job. I know we were watching some of the images on TV and online just about the crowded conditions where a lot of the uh, troops had to be staged. You know, I think it was in a parking area, and, you know, there wasn't a lot of distancing there. Yes. And so from our understanding is uh, they were there during their shift change. And then from that point, they were assigned to whatever uh, task force that they were going to support. So most of those images that you see were during the time they were doing the shift change. Okay. But we don't know where they might have come in contact with the positive case if it was there or somewhere else? Yeah. Unfortunately, we, we haven't been able to determine that. Okay, and then everybody is back from that group. I know that initially the detail was for 30 days. Did they stay the whole 30 days? No, part of that uh, 30 days was their 14 days coming back for restriction of movement. And yes, they're all back. Okay, and the symptoms uh, that they might have exhibited with a positive case, all pretty mild? Yeah, none of them had any serious symptoms or needed any additional medical care. I guess about the only thing they did exhibit, a few of them was a loss of taste and smell. I understand that there is another contingent that has volunteered to go to the nation's capital. Yes, there was about uh, four Hawaii Air National Guard members. And so they went up there and were providing logistics uh, for the flight services that are going through. Are they still there? Yes. Maybe be coming back right around the uh, middle of March Okay. next month. What can you share with us just about the mission going forward for the Guard here in Hawaii as it relates to COVID? Because right now you still have personnel helping with the testing. You know, you're at the airports. Yeah, so right now some of our current missions, we are still providing troops at the airport supporting the Safe Travels Program. We also are working the Port of Lanai, medically screening passengers in support of Maui County. And we have teams also working with DOH on the vaccination program and COVID mapping. On Kauai, we are assisting with their emergency managers with their quarantine verification program. Okay, and then uh, what's what's uh, down the road? What's on the horizon? Okay, down the road, we, we are anticipating supporting the counties and Department of Health with uh, large-scale events, vaccinating the public. We have done a few of uh, public vaccinations already on Hawaii, Hawaii Island, the Big Island. And our medical teams have been vaccinated, like we talked about, our joint task force. Okay, so they've got the experience already. They know what to do, and uh, uh, chances are then that's going to be expanded soon? Yes. What about the funding of the Guard uh, as it relates to these missions? Yeah, so right now we're following the the guidance that came down from President Biden. That um, uh, The letter came out pushing the, the support down to 31 September. So that's what we're looking at right now. We're just waiting for that funding to come through? Yes. Okay. Um, anything else you want to share just about the the Guard and, you know, our citizen soldiers, you know, when they're called up for a need like staffing uh, the Capitol? Well, the only thing I can really share is that uh, they did a, a very good job. And um, 
you know, we, we weren't short of any volunteers. It is a very uh, honored, time-honored uh, mission that they went on. And so um, we're ready and, and willing to uh, assist if needed. So it was just a, a call that you needed X amount of troops, and, uh, and, and you got that number. Yes, we did. And can you talk at all about the vaccines? Are the vaccines mandatory for our troops? No, not at this time. They aren't, okay. And and so, uh, I don't know, have you had a percentage that have just uh, declined to get the shots? Right now, we, we have a, probably a small percentage, but I don't have the numbers. And have you had any of your personnel suffer a bad allergic reaction to any of the vaccines? No, no we have not. Okay. And I know I am reading about how there are... Uh, some people that uh, tend to see some of the symptoms uh, following the second shot. What's been the experience of the guard? So far, we've been fortunate that it's just been minor symptoms. Um, we're doing good at that. That was a conversation we had with uh, Colonel Stanley Garcia talking to us about the Hawaii National Guard troops who were dispatched to help with security during the inauguration of President Joe Biden and those who tested positive for the coronavirus upon their return home. The Guard is expected to assist with mass vaccinations once our supply is increased to meet the demand. Right now, the winter weather is causing logistic problems for the vaccine rollout. Support for HPR comes from UH Manoa's Osher Lifelong Learning Institute for ages 50 and older, offering virtual classes including art, film, history, and gardening, with start dates through March 4th. More by searching Osher Hawaii. I'm Bert Lum. Today on Bite Mars Cafe, we'll talk to some of the finalists of the annual Hawaii Venture Capital Association Entrepreneur Awards. We'll learn how these companies have succeeded in taking their businesses to the next level in spite of the pandemic and slow economy. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Ken and Patty Kupchak for the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge, a nonprofit devoted to conserving the unique flora and fauna of Hawaii Island. More about how to help protect rare and endangered birds and plants at friendsofhakalauforest.org. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Up next, your backyard quiz. Native Hawaiian Henry Opukahaia was born in Kau in 19, or 1792, and he's remembered for being one of the early converts to Christianity. His destiny took him across the continent, where he opened the doors to the arrival of Protestant missionaries here in the islands. On this day in 1818, he died at the age of 26 in Connecticut. He was laid to rest in a Cornwall churchyard until his family asked that his remains be brought to ho back to Hawaii in the 1990s. We want to know where Henry Opukahaia's grave is now located. If you know the answer, give us a call at 941-3689 or 877-941-3689. The winner of our Backyard Quiz gets a tote bag that tells people you got it right.
Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which represents real estate businesses committed to supporting affordable housing statewide with support for nonprofits, including Hale o Hawaii on the island of Hawaii. Learn more at nareethawaii.com. The earlier cancer is detected, the better the chances for survival. The University of Hawaii Cancer Center and the Hawaii Cancer Consortium is part of a coalition of leading oncology experts who sent a letter endorsing that cancer screening and treatment resume during the ongoing pandemic. Dr. Randall Holcomb, the director of the UH Cancer Center, sat down with our producer, Lillian Song, to share his concern that there are many cancers being left to grow unchecked. We sent out the open letter because... We were concerned that because of the COVID-19 pandemic, many people have put off cancer screening and in some cases even cancer treatment because of fears of going to the doctor or going to their local hospital. And we wanted to remind people that these are very important so that cancer can be diagnosed early when it's most treatable. What have you been seeing this past year with the ongoing pandemic here in Hawaii? I think what we've seen in Hawaii mirrors what's been going on across the country. There has been a significant decrease in cancer screening activities that started really last March when many of the centers that were providing cancer screening had to shut down because of the pandemic. I think that we've seen here in Hawaii a a bounce back for mammography type screening that was initially stopped for many months but we've seen a rebound for mammography but other types of cancer screening we really have not seen rebound sufficiently and we want to remind people that if they've put off screening such as colonoscopy or CT scan for lung cancer screening or pap smears for cervical cancer screening that these are still important and that they should talk to their doctor about when they can resume such screening. One of the concerns we've seen across the country is that the number of new diagnoses for cancer has dropped significantly during the pandemic. And we don't think that's because there's less cancer that's occurring. There might be a slight bit less, but the drop has been much more than expected. What we are concerned about is that cancer is not being diagnosed because people are not going for cancer screening, and that will cause cancer to be diagnosed later at a later stage when it's harder to treat, and that might lead to more cancer deaths, and that's something we want to avoid. Yes, I was just reading that fact sheet, and the numbers are startling, that in the U.S. studies have found more than one-third of adults failed to receive their recommended cancer screenings during the pandemic and that an estimated 22 million cancer screenings were canceled or missed between last year's March and June. What were the numbers like here in Hawaii? Well, we had almost no uh, screening going on uh, between March and June, to tell you the honest truth, uh, Mm -hmm. because of the pandemic. Our local hospitals resumed breast cancer screening as quickly as they could, and they could do that uh, safely but we still have a a lag in most other types of screening. I don't think we have the full numbers. I'm working with HMSA, which is a member of our Hawaii Cancer Consortium, to try to get the numbers statewide about how many cancer screenings actually occurred in 2020 to compare them to 2019. I don't think we have the full data yet, but we know that there's been a significant decrease. One of the things that we're most concerned about here at the UH Cancer Center because part of our mission is to reduce the disparities in cancer outcomes for our native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander populations, is that cancer screening is particularly important for those groups. And we don't want people to present with later stage disease when they already have disparities in cancer mortality related to the most common cancers such as breast, lung, and colorectal cancer. So very important message to keep reiterating. Looking forward, is 2021 going to be better? I think 2021 will be much better. I think we have 
developed procedures at uh, both at private doctor's offices as well as our health centers to minimize the risk of exposure to COVID-19 with appropriate personal protective gear. And that's going to make it easier for patients to get into the doctor, to see the doctor. Uh, Also, as we get more and more people vaccinated, the risk should hopefully decrease in uh, contracting and spreading the virus. So I think that will make people feel more comfortable about going back and resuming their regular medical care. So I'm looking forward to a better 2021, but I am concerned about people who may have put off screening and that it may be more difficult path for them this year if the cancer is diagnosed later because that may involve more intensive treatment. Another thing that we have also noted is that many people across the country who have cancer have decided to delay or miss cancer treatments. And that's a tremendous concern for medical oncologists because we know that many cancers can be cured and the number of cancer survivors is growing every day. And we don't want that to stop. We want the number of survivors to continue to grow and missing cancer treatment would obviously put a damper on that. My concern here in Hawaii is that many of our neighbor island patients with cancer travel to Oahu, at least intermittently, for part of their care. And travel has been so difficult during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. I'm concerned that they may have had to miss some of those trips that are necessary related to their cancer care. And a lot of people have been pivoting. So with that difficulty, are you seeing then, because the need for the neighbor islands is there, are there organizations or facilities, are there things that are growing on the neighbor islands to address this? One of the things we have done is expand our telemedicine activities, and that has enabled physicians here on Oahu to better consult with patients on the neighbor islands. I don't think that takes the place of having a doctor right there at the location, but it can really assist care. So that is one thing that has changed quite a bit, I think, during this pandemic. We also have some programs here at the UH Cancer Center to pay for travel for people if they need to travel from the neighbor islands to Oahu if they're participating in a clinical trial. But there are some difficulties still. Uh, For instance, uh, the American Cancer Society Hope Lodge has been closed, and that's a location where people can often stay when they come from neighbor islands if they need to get care here uh, on Oahu. So um, we're hoping that that opens sometime in the the near future, uh, but that's been an added difficulty for people to travel. Our cancer patients are the ones who you'd probably least want to have travel. Their immune systems are compromised. They're probably the individuals who you'd least want to go into a a healthcare facility as well. Mm -hmm. So we need to take special precautions, and we've been doing that really throughout to try to make it as safe as possible. And I understand why people are concerned about going in for cancer screening or cancer treatment, particularly understanding for our Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander population because COVID has been so significant for that group. But the key is for people to talk to their doctor to see when they can resume these types of activities safely and then to try to make sure that they take care of their health as best as possible. That was UH Cancer Center Director Dr. Randall Holcomb stressing the importance of resuming cancer screening and treatment. For more information, visit uhcancercenter.org. Well, the kettle industry is the subject of our reality check today. Reporter Stuart Yurton joins us from the Honolulu Civil Beat offices in Kaimuki. Good morning, Stuart. Good morning, Catherine. Well, I was happy to see your article because, uh, quite honestly, I read the uh, uh, op-ed in the paper this morning about a a meatpacking monopoly uh, that's uh, rising in Hawaii. But your article today really gives context as to what's happening. 
Yes, well, we try to. It's um, it, it, there is a, a monopoly. It appears uh, one person, uh, uh, Frank Vandersloot, um, Idaho rancher, um, has bought up about seventy percent of the meat processing capacity in the islands here. Uh, and the question really is: Is that good or bad for the state? And so uh, what were you able to find out? I mean, I understand there's a legislative uh, hearing today on this. Right. So the Senate Agriculture uh, Committee is going to hear a bill, and the bill would put restrictions on uh, Mr. Vandersloot's operations, what he can do. Um, the original bill um, requires him to essentially set aside half of his capacity for uh, – ranchers and brands um, other than his own house brand. So essentially this is um, Parker Ranch is the main main uh, operator and they have the Paniolo uh, brand uh, local beef and they really want to make sure that they have access so they can keep doing uh, what they do and they don't get shut out. And tell us about Mr. Vandersloot. Well, Mr. Vandersloot uh, made a lot of money, uh, uh, billions. <laughs> He's a billionaire, um, and his fortune really comes from a, uh, a healthcare uh, product line. Um, it's, it's sort of a, a pyramid marketing or multi-level marketing um, uh, program, and um, he, he made a lot of money doing that. And he st he bought ranches as very wealthy people uh, tend to do, uh, bought a bunch of ranches in the western United States and Idaho and other states, and, um, and eventually moved to Hawaii and, and, and bought a, a house here. I'm not sure if he spends full time here, but he spends part of his time here, and really started getting involved in uh, the meat processing industry here. And uh, I know there are two plants here, right? One on the Big Island, one on Oahu. And I think I've been to that one on Oahu, uh, which is a you know USDA-approved facility. Yeah, what was it like? Because we weren't able to get in on short notice. Well, I, this was when they f it first opened, and you know, very strict. I remember recalling having to to dip my boots in uh, you know a, a, a bleach solution as you walk from room to room, and so. Uh, you know, it was just really an amazing uh, f facility, you know, just to see here on the island. Yes, well, and he, uh, Mr. Vandersloot, is, has, has a lease. It's state-owned. He has a lease for that facility and one on the Big Island, and he is going to increase capacity. And as much as uh, some of the folks like the Parker Ranch people and some, some other uh, bigger ranchers there on the Big Island don't like it, um, uh, a lot of small ranchers like this idea because they say they've really been shut out. It takes a long time to, to process uh, their cattle, and they are really happy about it. For instance, I talked to someone, uh, uh, Francis Silva with Barbed S Ranch here on Oahu and Waianae, and she said she's stoked that Mr. Vandersloot's coming. He's They've had virtual meetings, et cetera. The other interesting turn of events was this morning uh, we reported that the Hawaii Cattlemen's Council supported the House um, version of the Senate bill that's being heard today. And um, the Cattlemen's Council, that was true. They did support the House companion bill. They wrote me today to say, no, they no longer support it. They've heard from a lot of their small ranchers, and now they are saying they're um, commenting and not actually uh, testifying in support, which is a difference, and it shows that the the ranchers really are divided on on what's going on here. So I guess the question is: Is everybody going to get a fair shake uh, under this deal? And you know, right. who's going to get hurt if uh, there is a monopoly here? Right, and you know, I did speak to Mr. Vandersloot's uh, attorney, Paul Alston, and uh, Mr. Alston said he, he said, "Look, there's a lot of Mr. Mr. Vandersloot hasn't done anything wrong yet. He is not engaged in unfair uh, trade practices of any kind. He doesn't intend to. He doesn't need to. He, he's a billionaire. He has plenty of money, um, and that there's such a spotlight on him now um, that it would be really hard for him to do anything wrong." I don't know if that's true, but that's his attorney's argument, and it, it is fairly persuasive. Okay, well, I guess we'll see what happens at this afternoon's hearing. But thanks so much, Stuart.
Thank you, Catherine. That was reporter Stuart Yurton with today's Reality Check. He covers business stories. Visit civilbeat.org to read his story on the cattle processing controversy. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, presenting the exhibition Kamran Samimi in Stillness, with works exploring ideas of space, time, and impermanence. HonoluluMuseum.org. The news and music you hear on HPR are supported in part by nearly 200 local organizations that make us a part of their communication strategy. Mahalo to the St. Andrews Schools, Pico, and Diamond Head Theater. They believe, just as you do in the power of public radio. See a full list of our underwriters at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from Hawaii Energy, committed to helping nonprofits reduce their energy use during COVID-19 with energy-efficient lighting and HVAC systems. hawaiienergy.com slash businesses. It is Black History Month, and on February 1st, we held a roundtable talk about race and what it's like being black here in the islands. Following that show, we got this. Hi, this is Winifred Patterson Wakatsuki of Pearl City, and I wanted to share my experience on being black in Hawaii after hearing your show. I'm almost 40 years old. I'm half black and Japanese, and I was born and raised in Hawaii. My parents chose Hawaii as a place to settle and to have kids due to their interracial marriage. My mother was from Japan and my father was African-American from Illinois. And they didn't want to start a family in the mainland nor in Japan due to the heavy racism on both sides of the globe. Growing up in Hawaii, my older sister and I didn't have much of a black community to be around and the few black friends we had were in the military or in, were in our lives for about two years at most. We weren't always openly embraced by our Asian or African-American communities. And my sister, who was a darker complexion, was often seen as too black for the Asian kids, and I, much lighter, was too Asian for the black kids. My sister has many stories of being shamed as a child in the mid-70s for bringing musubi for school lunch, and I, on the other hand, was told by mainland students that I wasn't black enough, and was actually asked to bring in family photos to prove my blackness because I didn't sound black or look black. But fitting in and feeling accepted within a larger ohana wasn't impossible because there was always the option of being considered local. And perhaps like President Obama, who spent his formative years in Hawaii, uh, we are able to share a vision of hope of what a better America can look like because we were generally accepted in a larger ohana in those years. So thank you again for hosting a great conversation. Bye. And that was Winifred Patterson Watatsuki, thank you so much for sharing your story. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Reach out via social media on Facebook or Twitter or call our talkback line 792-8217. For 40 years, the Hawaii Nature Center has drawn curious keiki outdoors to learn about our natural world. HPR's Kuvehi Reishi joins us to take a closer look at this community resource. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. I had a chance to visit the Hawaii Nature Center headquarters, so deep in Makiki Valley, a couple of weeks ago to catch a glimpse of how the organization is is really adapting, like everyone else, to COVID-19. So historically, the center's uh, been occupied mostly by school groups on the weekdays, with Keiki coming in for summer or spring breaks in between. But under the pandemic, the center began opening up to kids who maybe wanted to add more outdoor adventure to their virtual learning routine. I found a couple of Keiki exploring the stream and others catching insects in the nearby meadow. Let's take a listen. (laughs) 
there's like little grasshoppers in here like that guy. Wow. This one, this one, I caught him and he's called a, um, Katie did. And we got lots of different like flies and stuff in here, like those little leaf. Those bugs. are sweat bees. These are kind of sweat bee things. If you have sweat on them, they will that? collect you. <laughs> it was a curious conversation, but that was, uh, those are eight-year-olds. Marin and Eugen, if you can tell, uh, Marin is a veteran. She's been going to the Hawaii Nature Center for about a year now. Uh, both are homeschooled, and so they spend about half the day there. Their parents would drop them off, uh, off after their morning lessons, which is um, something Todd Collison, the executive director of the Hawaii Nature Center, says uh, he's been seeing an increased demand. Yeah, here's Collison. You know, like everybody, the buzzword, we've made this pivot to, you know, from the school groups, at least being on site, to more of a, uh, what we call outdoor adventure days. You can come in on a Monday, Wednesday, or Tuesday, Thursday all day, or those same days on a half a day. And what we see is a lot of, you know, some growth there with, like I said, the families that have decided that homeschool is a better option or that their schools get out early enough on the virtual learning days that there's not a lot else for them to do, so they're able to come up here. And we've heard this again and again from parents. So where do I take my kids? I want them to get out of the house. I don't want them to be in front of their computer screen all day. And parent Leon Geshwin has been sending his six-year-old. He's actually got, a, I think, three children that uh, he's trying to introduce to nature by taking them to the nature center. But his six-year-old daughter, Anna, who's a student at Waialai Elementary, was there that day. She's been coming around since last summer. And he says, you know, once Anna's school went into 100% virtual learning, he turned to the center because he wanted his daughter to get out of the house. Here's Geshwin. It's, I mean, we're working, I'm working full-time from home, teleworking, obviously like a lot of parents. But to be able to have that, to know that she's in a space where she's learning, she's outdoors, she's getting her hands dirty and muddy and, you know, just, just being involved in nature. And giving me time to on a work, work at the same time too has been has been tremendous. So yeah, I have an older one. I also have a younger one too, and they have Saturday programs. So we're bringing. She's too young for these programs. She's only two, going on three, but they have these Saturday programs, and we're coming to one this coming Saturday actually. The Hawaii Nature Center celebrates its 40th anniversary this year, and so part of what Collison is trying to do is expand the reach, the center's reach, to include kids of all ages as well as Ohana. So that Saturday program that you heard Geshwin talking about is actually an opportunity for uh, Kiki as young as three to come down with their families and spend the day together at the center. It's something Collison says, you know, stimulates that conversation back at the house uh, when they all get home and that's something he wants to see more of. Over the past four decades, the center has grown to include a site in Yale Valley on Maui, which I know you're familiar with, Catherine, yes. as well as that Makiki site. But altogether, and this amazes me, having been raised on the neighbor island, I didn't realize about this gem right there in Honolulu, but uh, altogether, the center served an estimated 1 million keiki over the last 40 years. Here's Collison. So we're working on a project right now, kind of the 21st century environmental education, where we want to kind of redesign and reimagine our curriculum for, you know, more of a holistic approach and a scientific approach for the next generation of those kids that need to come up and connect, you know, what we do here to those larger statewide themes, larger global themes. You know, certainly we're talking about, you know, climate change. How does, you know, our actions here on in Hawaii impact the climate? And, you know, how do we teach those? You know, again, I go back to that building blocks and teaching these, you know, native plants, native trees, flora and fauna, the water cycle, we think that that'll lead to a better understanding of, you know, these other themes as they get older. A very interesting place. I wish I had an opportunity as a kid to have, have uh, visited myself. Oh, it's a wonderful place. My my kids went there and such good memories, you know, getting uh, their little nets out there and fishing in the stream <laughs> and just the just learning about the flora and fauna of Hawaii. It's really, it's a real gem there in Mikiki. It is, it is, and they're looking forward to, as Cullison was saying, sort of incorporating more of that, uh, more of the community issues, more of the um, connecting kids 
to what's here in their own backyard with the idea that they can go out anywhere then and understand their place uh, around the world. But for these kids, it's really interesting to watch them do this under COVID. So they, you know, I went down to the stream and all the kids were masked and they'd always be very aware of, hey, you're not, you know, get <laughs> socially distant. And, and having that as part of the experience is new. Uh, but Cullison uh, has said that they've been lucky enough not to have had any cases of COVID-19 and been very um, grateful for the kids listening <laughs> to the rules. Yeah, well, it just really is amazing when you think that they have had a million of our keiki come through there. And hopefully they can expand to the other islands. It's a wonderful program. Right, right. Well, thank you so much for uh, spotlighting this community resource. Mahalo. Mahalo. That was HPR's Ku'uvehirishi talking about the 40th anniversary of the Hawaii Nature Center, which offers programs on Oahu and Maui. is the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. We now go to this week's Manu Minute to meet the endangered Hawaiian crow. University of Hawaii Hilo professor Patrick Hart makes the introduction. The alala is a velvety black native Hawaiian crow that's actually more closely related to ravens. They were once common on Hawaii Island, but their numbers declined drastically in the 20th century due to habitat loss, hunting, and disease to the point where there were none left in the wild. Today, they're one of the world's rarest birds. A total of 132 alala remain at two breeding facilities in Hawaii, managed by the San Diego Zoo. Alala played important roles as seed dispersers of many native forest trees. In 2017 and 2018, a number of birds were released into the wild on the slopes of Mauna Loa on Hawaii Island in hopes of reestablishing a wild breeding population. Things seemed hopeful for the first two years, but the native Hawaiian hawk, or eo, began to successfully prey on too many of them. So by late 2020, the last five wild birds were brought back into captivity. Like humans, alala learn their songs from each other, and recent research has shown that their vocalizations have changed in the years since they've been in captivity. Some territorial calls that were once common in wild birds are no longer heard in captive ones, like this. and also this one. Interestingly, the newly released wild birds seem to be learning a new vocabulary, and for a brief couple years, the soundscape of a Hawaiian forest once again included the calls of the alala. For Hawaii Public Radio, I'm Patrick Hart, from the biology department at UH Hilo. Fascinating. Hawaii Public Radio's weekly feature, Manu Minute, is a podcast. Hear the beautiful sounds of island songbirds and find out why many are threatened by their changing environment. Subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts or Spotify or through your RSS feed. Support for Manu Minute comes from Dr. Mike and Sharon Scott for the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge, a nonprofit devoted to conserving the unique flora and fauna of Hawaii Island. More about how to volunteer at friendsofhakalauforest.org. show, we told you about Henry Opukaha'ia, a native Hawaiian who was one of the earliest Christian converts. Born in 1792, he traveled to the East Coast in his teens. He was educated in both Christian and secular subjects and was preparing to lead a mission back to the islands when he became ill with typhoid fever and died on this day 200 
and three years ago. He was buried in Cornwall, Connecticut, and there he lay until the early 1990s. That's when the Opukahia family successfully petitioned to have his remains repatriated to Hawaii. There is a plaque at the Cornwall gravesite that reads, In July of 1993, the family of Henry Opukahia took him home to Hawaii for internment at Kahikolu Congregational Church Cemetery, Napo'opo'okona Island of Hawaii. Henry's family expresses gratitude, appreciation, and love to all who cared and loved him throughout the past years. And I was very uh, fortunate to have been there uh, that day when uh, those uh, remains were returned. And a uh, fun little fact, the uh, pastor at Central Union was there at Cornwall uh, blessing the Evie before uh, Opukahia's remains uh, returned home to Hawaii. We had no winners today, but that was today's quiz. If you have one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. The Hawaii Opera Theater kicked off an island-inspired digital production over Valentine's Day weekend. It's a Mozart one-act comic opera entitled Bastien and Bastiana. HOT's general director, Andrew Morgan, makes his directorial debut with a digital production. Morgan has directed more than 20 mostly Mozart productions in the San Francisco Bay Area, where he came to us from. Here in the islands, we all know about a sense of place, and this production works in the images of God's country from Kamuela there on the Big Island in the Mozart piece. know that opera in Hawaii dates back to the 1850s when Queen Emma sang in the chorus of a Verdi production and King Kamehameha IV served as stage manager. Hot director Andrew Morgan says you don't have to know much about opera to appreciate it. You just have to have an open mind. So the one that we're we're taking on now is a Mozart opera, short, like 35-minute opera that Mozart wrote when he was 12 years old. Wow. Um, as I've said before, I think I was still stumbling over my shoelaces at 12, you know, so quite uh, brilliant. I mean, he wrote a symphony at like age nine. So it's a wonderful little piece, just three characters, a soprano, a tenor, and a bass. And it's a little love story, the, the, the soprano and the tenor. Of course, that's very opera. You know, the soprano falls in love with the tenor. Uh, they they have a little lover's quarrel. The the bass is a kind of a quack magi- magician, and he he works his magic, and and they get back together, and they live happily ever after at the end. So it's a it's a pastoral setting. So I thought, you know, we're in Hawaii. We've got these amazing ranches on the Big Island. So we're we're using imagery from the Kahua Ranch on the Big Island for for the backdrop uh, for this and. Um, the whole thing is narrated by a hand puppet that's an old English sheepdog. Very family-friendly, a lot of fun, a lot of animation in it. Just a great, great little production and a charming piece, very approachable music. So we, we, we need to lighten things up. Things have been yes. so heavy. This is a comedy. Yes, it's a comedy. So 35 minutes, and it's perfect for Valentine's Day. Yeah, it definitely is a light, light-hearted piece and, and done in a very light-hearted way. So how have you folks had to adapt to the whole situation with COVID? Well, I mean, we've had to pivot our entire business model, right? You know, as an opera company, we're giving performances at the Blaisdell for 2,000 people at a time with a full orchestra and chorus and sets and costumes and everything. And, and we just, you know, that's just not possible uh, now, the, the audiences in particular. But, you know, I can't put 60 orchestra members in an orchestra pit uh, all of that. So we, we've had to really rethink how we deliver opera while still creating content so that people know we're here. And so we pretty early on decided that we were going to go digital. 
and uh, record what we could record. We converted a rehearsal space that we have in our building to be kind of a sound studio, a small uh, black box uh, recording studio so that we've been taping everything there and picking pieces that have small number of singers so we can do things in a safe method as possible. The, the Mozart has three pieces. Our first opera back in October released, it just had one singer. And so we, you know, kind of varying it up. But yeah, it's been, it's a complete business uh, pivot for us. And it's been exciting. Everybody's had to really new, learn a lot of new functions and wear different hats with our staff and engaging local artists and a videographer that we found that, that lives on island named Dave Hunt that's just been an amazing partner with us, very creative and going the extra mile to make these uh, digital productions really special. Uh, have you been able to uh, get some uh, CARES money to help you, you know, buy the equipment and, and that kind of thing in order to, to keep producing, you know, your art? We did get, um, for the first payroll protection program uh, through the CARES Act, we got a loan that will be forgivable, Thank and thanks to the Bank of Hawaii for helping us shepherd that through. But yes, we did get that, and then we had, uh, we've received a $50,000 award through the National Endowment for the Arts, one of only, I think, eight opera companies in the country that got a grant through that program. Wow. Um, and that has helped quite quite a bit. So it was, a, it was a real competitive thing. Very competitive. There was over 800 applications, I understand, for that uh, program, at least just from opera companies. And, of course, it went to other arts organizations as well. And I have to say that, you know, our our board in particular, but the community in general, has just been very supportive with donations to, to support what we're doing, acknowledging that we are, you know, not, they want us back live, and so do I, but uh, helping us uh, keep going with these digital productions. Even our education programs are all virtual with the digital productions, online learning. We're in the school still, you know, with that way. And we're about to release uh, our Opera Express, which is our touring production that we do uh, take around the islands. That is about, you know, like a 45-minute piece that's uh, interactive with kids. And so that's going to be released digitally in the next few weeks. So we're just we're just trying to keep, we're keeping vital and uh being a member of the community that I think is it's been really gratifying to see people appreciate what we're doing. I think I saw something about how the New York ballet companies, you know, the dancers have taken to the to dancing in the fountains, you know, or in the yeah. parks. Yeah. Yes. Well, you know, the the um, and I, I do want us to get out back into the community, but um, you know, singing is kind of a super spreading event, so I'm being very cautious about having us have singers live in front of people, but we'll get there. Now, you folks recently also uh, had a production that featured uh, Kelsey Quinn and Taimani Gardner, uh, which was yeah. an interesting mix. Quinn Kelsey, and and Quinn is a baritone, bass baritone. It's got an international career, but he came straight out of uh, HOT's uh, training programs and performed with us in his early his teens and, and uh, young adulthood and went off to be a big star, but he still comes back with us, and it was it was great to have him, and of course, Taimani is just an amazing ukulele player, virtuoso, and the two of them together in a room was electrifying. So it was really fun to kind of have this mashup of, of what opera can be in, in, in tandem with an ukulele player, and a lot of fun stuff came out of that concert. Yeah, it's terrific, you know, uh, during these times, uh, how innovative we can be, right? Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's things that that we as a company and and me as an artist and, and art producer have been thinking about for some time. It just kind of it, it it forced us to to do it immediately, right? You know, how the things, the questions that the company's been asking, uh, in particular since I got here, but even before, have been how do we reflect where we are? We you know we are a company that is in Hawaii, but we want to be of Hawaii. Uh, opera is an art form very much you know based in European. Uh, Western European traditions. And so how can we make that relevant for the communities that we're serving here? And a concert like that with Quinn and, and Taimani just uh, is exactly the right direction, I think. Um, you know, we're not getting rid of the bohems and the butterflies and all, but I think we can we can add some unique programming that, that tells our story in different ways. Well, it's, it's neat that uh, you're working in the Big Island Angle. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. we, we saw, what was it, the, that one production of A Soldier's Tale that incorporated, you know, Hawaiian elements, uh, you know, into yeah. that production. And so it, it, it's really fun to see, uh, you know, what's possible. 
Yeah, you know, I think when somebody goes to a theater, they want to be able to see themselves on stage. And so the more relatable we can make it uh, and the relevant to the community, you know, it, it's not just a, a shtick. It, it's a, something that, that's an, it's an interesting way to look at things, different perspective, the island perspective. And how different is it doing opera here than, you know, in San Francisco, where you were for many years? Well, I mean, the main difference is San Francisco is a, a gigantic company that does, you know, eight, eight or nine productions a year, 10 or 12 performances of each of those. But the core of what we do is the same. We are all trying to tell unique stories that only opera can tell in engaging ways and, and serve our community. You know, it's, it's just the, it's the dollars and cents behind it that are different than the sheer number of people. But the people here are so, uh, the people that I've met here are so supportive of the company and thrilled about opera in general. It's just, a, it's a great place to be. That was Andrew Morgan, director of Hawaii Opera Theater. He made his directorial debut this weekend with Bastien and Bastiano, a comedic opera written by Mozart when he was just 12. The show opened Valentine's Day weekend and is now available for streaming online. Well, we have to go now, but up tomorrow, we plan to hear from Senator Brian Schatz. He'll be open to questions from our listeners for the first half hour. Email or call in live or record your question on our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation HPR or tweet us at HI Conversation. And our email works too, talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Want to listen back to something you heard? Find our archive shows online. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. Thank you.